Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. That was maybe what some of us exactly needed this morning. Well, I hope you're doing well coming from your Thanksgiving preparations. Yesterday, I was helping take the turkeys out of the refrigerator, making sure they thaw. We're hosting this year, so pretty excited about that in our little town home. It's going to be interesting, but uh, hopefully you have some great plans, hopefully some fun with family and friends. I'm glad you chose to be here this morning as we continue working through the book of Mark, and uh, we're getting uh, closer to the pause in this series. As I mentioned last week, we're going to go just a couple more weeks into this and then pause all the way until Easter where we conclude with uh, the end of the book of Mark. But uh, this morning, and it's been interesting uh, to see that uh, the different uh, turns and twists that following Jesus has in the account of his life where you're never quite sure what you're going to get when you're diving into his word. And maybe you found that in your own life as you follow him. You're never quite sure where he's going to take you, where you're going to land. And this morning, our text lands in an interesting place. It talks where Jesus is actually confronting fraud, confronting fraud, or, or in the, the title that I have there is exposing fraud. And maybe you've been on the uh, receiving end of some kind of a fraud scenario where it's, it's just not fun, right? Don't you hate the feeling of someone taking advantage of you or, or doing something fraudulent? I was just talking to a, a friend that's in town for this uh, wedding who was staying at our place, and he was telling me the story. He knows I'm into, into cars. He was telling me the story of how he recently tried to do his research, tried to shop for a good deal, found a car on Craigslist, reasonable miles, like 50,000 miles, got this car, was driving it, enjoying it, and opened up in the glove compartment box, noticed that the service records showed that that car had hit 50, had hit 60,000 miles, had hit 80,000 miles, had hit 120,000 miles. The, most, the, the last account was at 160,000 miles. And so he had purchased a car thinking it had 50,000 miles when in fact it had 160,000 miles stinks to get bamboozled, right? That's a good word. Bamboozled stinks. Like that's, it's, it's frustrating to be on the receiving end of that. Thankfully, he was able to take that car back and, and let him know what he thought about the whole process. And, uh, and so uh, for that, I was thinking in context to this morning's text of how frustrating. Now picture if you're the one with the car dealership and it's your last name on the sign, how frustrating it would it'd be to see fraud happening in your own place, your own place, and think about how frustrating it must have been for Jesus Christ to observe fraud in his house, to observe fraud under the name of his father, it must have been pretty discouraging. We'll see in the New Testament all over the place that he was very patient with somebody that's stuck in sin or battling, uh, trying to overcome a, an addictive behavior or caught in adultery. We've seen the account of that. But here you see that Jesus doesn't have much tolerance for fraudulent guides. He doesn't have much tolerance for fraudulent guides. He takes that very seriously. And kind of the order of things here in our text this morning, we're in Mark 12, 38, is where we're going to be starting. This happens on the Wednesday of the Passion Week. And this is really, if you, it's interesting that these are his actual final words to the crowd. 
The very last time that he speaks to the crowd, this is his final warning, if you will. Then it, it, it turns a corner and he just talks uh, to his disciples. But these are his last words. And what is the topic out of his very last words to the crowd? Was the topic was fraudulent guides, people that were misleading people within the religious system. So we're going to dive in in verse 38, and it's interesting. We're going to be looking to start with, he points out to some clues to watch for. And when you're dealing with people that are fraudulent guides, look in verse 38 here. It says, And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for, the preten- for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Let's pause there for a moment. The thing that you might notice first is he uses the word beware. But probably to that people group, it was a surprise of what he was telling them to beware of. What does it say? Beware of the scribes. Wait a second. In that culture, the scribe was the person that was set in place to protect the people, to protect the people from wandering from the the truth of God's word, to keep them from wandering off the trail, if you will. So wait a second, what happens when you discover those who are supposed to be protecting you are the ones that you have to be aware of? How much does it infuriate us when we turn on the news and you see another account of a, of a cop that, was, uh, that d- did something totally outside of the, the realm of justice or, or, or you, an account of a, a government official that was hired to protect or to lead or to serve and they're, they're, you're, you're like, wait, this is broken. It's not supposed to be like that. Spending some time in uh, Kenya with my, my wife and working with a missionary group there, talking to one of the pastors, he was explaining the situation is pretty desperate, where we freak out in the United States when we hit 7 or 8% unemployment. They were dealing with 87% unemployment. Can you imagine? Just talking to him, and I'm like, man, but there's, isn't there just lots of people from around the world that are trying to send aid and get help? And he's like, but here's the problem. It has to make it through the government and the system that's in place, and you have all of these people abusing their power and and, uh, abusing that and taking advantage of their scenario while the masses suffer. It was just frustrating to watch, to, to see at firsthand the poverty that was because of that. And here, Jesus is calling them out in this, saying, listen, there's some fraudulent guides, some fraudulent people in leadership. If you think about it, this was a merciful act of of Christ, right? Wouldn't you want, if you had somebody in a religious leadership over you, wouldn't you want somebody to blow the whistle and be like, hey, wait a second, this this is fraud, especially when it's things dealing with eternity and things of, of, of your spiritual life. So he calls them out. He says, beware. And then he starts to list some different clues that you might notice are, are things to watch for with the, these fraudulent leaders in that time. What's the first thing that he points towards? Long robes. First, you're like, well, wait a second, I kind of like robes. You know, some of the nicer hotels, they have the cushy ones. You know, like, no, it's not, it's not talking about that time. That, that. You can see in the, the picture there, the attire of the time, the common person wear, wore robes instead of dockers. And, uh, and, and so robes was the, was the thing, but here was what he was calling out. He was calling them out with the wrong robes, with the long robes, because he's saying, listen, 
They're doing things to look the part as being someone holy, but the truth was that they weren't. Numbers 15 points to the fact that originally this was something that was established that they would have blue tassels on the bottom of a Jewish robe. These blue tassels were to be a reminder for the Jewish person, one, that they were set apart and they belonged to God and that they were accountable to his word. So this something that was initially intended to be something to hold the, the nation accountable and to leave them set apart had become, Matthew 23, 5 points out that they had started to enlarge the tassels, making them a little, a little longer, a little bit more. It's kind of like Rabbi Bling, you know, like it was, it, 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 it was trying to put on a front or put on a, a show, if you will, to impress and that's who he's calling them out in this. And Matthew 23 is a parallel passage, and he points directly to this issue. I think it's interesting. The less spiritual life someone has, the more they need symbols to represent a spiritual life. Think about that for a second. The less you're spiritual on the inside, the more you're grasping for ways on the outside to appear religious. So he calls them out on their long robes. And then he points to their, their greetings, greetings in the marketplace. You're like, what's that all about? Like, what's wrong with saying hi to somebody at the, at the grocery store? Like, that's, that's not the point there. In fact, again, Matthew 23, who actually is a parallel passage to this account, in verse 7, we'll put that on the screen there so you can see that. Matthew 23, 7 points to these greetings. It says, greetings in the marketplace, is describing it. Uh, I thought we were putting that on the screen. Uh, greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But listen to this correction. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So he's basically pointing out these different greetings. Which ones does he address? The, the term rabbi, which means teacher, he's saying, listen, that was reserved for me. I'm the only teacher. All of this, he's saying, the rest of you, you're all on the same playing field. You're all brothers. You, you stole the name for me. Father, he's, saying, he's not saying that a kid can't call someone a father, but uh, addressing somebody as a father, does anybody notice that in today's culture still? A little concerning when I read this text. Father, only one, the father kind of takes it a step further as, as seeing as the father as a source of life, which is like, whoa, easy there, buddy. Like, take, take it easy with that, that acclaim, he's calling them out instructor, he says, listen, I'm the only instructor and I've provided the Holy Spirit to assist in that. You can't take that claim. So he's calling them out as false, as false leaders when he's pointing out these different areas that they love to receive these accolades or these terms of greatness. What's he point them to? The same thing that he had pointed his disciples to a few weeks ago. He says, listen, in my kingdom, remember this? My upside down kingdom, those who are celebrated are those who serve. The, the humble are lifted up. That, that's what it looks like in my kingdom. So he's saying this is, this is perverted. This is going the wrong direction. So he points out the, the titles 
Then he describes kind of taking that a step further, the, the wanting to have the, the best seats in the synagogue and loving to be, ha, have the places of honor held in, in high esteem. And I was trying to think of parallels to that today. I, I have seen church services where they've got the row of different people behind the pastor that are all sitting there in their places of honor. You know, there's, there, there's some, still some things that we can point to in today's context, or, or maybe it's smaller things. Maybe it's the honor of getting to serve, to hand out the 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 bulletin or what who knows what it might be i i find it funny at the the last church that i was in staff at in chicago's pretty large uh church and um they had uh i, I worked with the young adults there but they had uh, pr- pretty tight scrutiny over who was in the choir. So like you had to be at a certain level musically before you got on that stage. And, uh, and it, it was kind of an interesting thing. And so like the level of excellence was great, but getting on the, on the stage was a, 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 a quite the feat. You had to be, have a f- few Grammys uh, next to you. But, uh, but it was interesting. There was one, one story of one of the, the campuses where uh, a gentleman had tried for the choir multiple times to make it to the choir. And they get, kept saying, you know, we just think he still have some work to do in this, and like, so here's some blah, 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 just nicely saying it's not the right fit. And, uh, and this gentleman instead took the role of working the sound booth in the back, but he had a great idea. He would start looping his voice into the choir mix. So he started, they, 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 they eventually caught up to him doing this, and they're like, what are you doing? He, he was like, he wanted that, that spot of honor uh, but wasn't willing to, I guess, put in the work. And so it was just an interesting story. I don't know why I shared that other than I thought it was funny. Um, but the best seats is he, what he calls them out on, wanting those places of honor. And really, that's something that we need to check ourselves on ourselves. Then he takes a turn even a little bit darker where he starts pointing out a sin that's hard to uh, debate with when he says, devour widows' houses devour widows' houses. Whoa, this, these accusations are, are growing. They're escalating, right? Like who would ever want to be known as somebody that devours widows' houses? But that's what he's calling them out in. If you think about it, it's the exact opposite of God's intention for what he wanted religion to be about. James 1.27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, the widows was supposed to be the, the target of their, of their care and their support. That was supposed to be the, the focus of their attention, not the source of their wealth or their income. Doing a little reading, a little research on this, and what it points to is history says that that was a real problem in that culture, that it was a religious system that was built on the foundation of the, the poor. And in fact, the, the, the person that would play the role of a scribe actually would offer legal counsel. That was one of the parts because they were the ones that determined what the law said and the parameters on it and even the justice system. That someone would hire them as legal counsel and what they were doing and what this text is re- referring to is that they would then accept a home, their home, as a pledge for payment. Does that make sense? So their home was then a pledge, like, uh, I'll provide these services, but sign over the deed, you know? Like, that's, that's a problem. That's what he's calling them out on, saying, this is, this is perverted, this is polluted, this, this is a, a huge issue, calling them out in their sin. Best seats, devour widows, long prayers, Here's the thing to make sure we understand about that. Like spending a long time praying is something that's an awesome thing. Like that's not to be frowned upon. But what does it say, what does it say about that in that context? 
What, what does it point to? And for a pretense, make long prayers. This idea to try to make yourself seem more spiritual because of how long and super flowy your words are and how spiritual and like using words that nobody else recognizes. And, and, and so he's saying, listen, that's a problem. That's a problem. He's calling them out on that. It wasn't based on a genuine interest in talking to God. It was based on a, hey, everybody, look at me. Look how spiritual I am. He's calling them out on heart issues because he sees straight through that. And the truth is, this is a, a caution and even a warning to us because we, if we're not careful, we can also get sucked into some of this outward expression, religiosity, if you will. We can get sucked into it, put it on a, on a Sunday face, but really the authentic relationship isn't there. Do you remember some weeks back I was talking about, you know what? Jesus wants, he just wants our heart. He just wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want a front. He doesn't want to put on a show. He wants the real deal. He wants, he wants us to be, be fully sold out to him, but not in pretense as it describes there. I think it's interesting that you see that, uh, that these folks, these folks that are doing this, that are these fall, fraudulent guides, what does it say? It says, they will receive the greater condemnation. I think that's interesting because I think that pushes back a little bit against what our culture or our world wants to say, where we want to be so embracing of finding the best in every single religion, isn't it? Now, this might step on some toes, I'm sorry. But there, there's that embrace to say, like, you know what, we, it's sincere, it's, it's genuine, but if you think about it, in all honesty, if it's a false religion, it can only be a show because it can't be based on a genuine relationship with God. Does that make sense? If it's, a, if it's a false religion, because what does Jesus Christ say? It says, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? So any other attempt at gaining favor or coming before God outside of Jesus Christ falls in this category of false guides. And I feel a weight of that to say like, hey, we got to be cautious of that. We have to be on guard of that because that's a reality in our culture. And so here he points to this. And what does he say? He says, they're, they, don't get, they don't get off the hook of this. He says, they will receive greater condemnation. In the parallel passage in Matthew 23, when he describes these, these false guides, he keeps saying, woe to you Pharisees. Woe to you. It's a fascinating word, the idea of like, man, it's not going to go well for you, Pharisees. It's not going to go well. Woe to you, Pharisees. In fact, Matthew 23, 33 is a pretty bold statement. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How, listen to this, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? Whew. He doesn't take this lightly, does he? He's not, he takes it pretty seriously. He's calling them out in their, in their fake guides and saying, this is, this, is not, this is a serious business. Condemnation is coming. That's why he keeps saying, whoa, guys, you got to get it. You got to get it. So he calls them out on this, and you think about it. You don't need to wonder why the Jewish leaders of that time didn't embrace Christ, right? 
Like it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't be a shock to us. Like they, they were, he, was, he was pointing to some pretty dark sides of what was going on internally that, that maybe the rest of the culture wasn't seeing. It shouldn't be any shock that they were trying to work behind the scenes as quickly as possible. We've got to kill this guy. We've got to get him on that cross. We've got to end what he's saying. He's calling our bluff. He's calling out our system. He's, he's taking our, our, our money, our way to make money away. He's, he's calling us out on our junk. And so it shouldn't be surprised, it shouldn't be surprised why they rejected him. It would have taken an act of humility, and that's what he says. It would have taken a bending of the knee, if you will, and saying, We were wrong. We're heading the wrong direction. We've been taking people the wrong direction, but that didn't happen. Continues on in the text. And he points to an example we're going to see a victim of fraud, if you will. Verse 41 says, and he, sat, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Let's pause there for a second. How crazy would that be? Jesus Christ there assessing, like watching, like, oh, I saw what you give. Like, dig a little deeper. Like, no, like, no, like what that, that would be like having Jesus watch, but that's what it says he did. He's watched and he says, many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pause there for a second. Typically, when we hear this section of Scripture read, if you've been around church world, you're about to, to hear a section of sermon about the proper way to give, right? That, that's typically what we receive from a preacher, saying like, see, she gave it all. She gave every last penny. But I would propose, and thankfully uh, I have uh, some men that I respect that would have the same conclusion about this text, uh, Dave Ramsey and John MacArthur would say, that that's not at all the intent in this context. What if, and you guys can wrestle through this over lunch, what if this isn't Jesus saying, hey, I just described this messed up system. Let me show you the outcome of this. Let me show you this widow giving her last two pennies to live on to this broken system. Are you tracking with me? What if that's not the point that he's trying to make, the observation that he's making? You think about how often a preacher points to this text. He'll typically say, you know, the conclusion, the measure of a gift is what is left over after you've given. Give until it hurts, you know, like that's kind of the, the general intent. But is that really what he's pointing to here? True measure of a gift is the attitude in which you give it in. That's maybe a true statement. That's probably accurate. Like God wants a cheerful giver. He, he wants us to give out, out of an overflow of our, of our hearts. But is that really what he's pointing to here? We don't even know what her attitude or her motivation is in this context. Often you'll hear a pastor pre present this. Gift that God values is the vow of poverty, leaving everything behind. And here's a perfect example of it, this, this widow. Do you see how that's a little bit maybe different from the context of the conversation that he's having with the people at that time? I would propose that Jesus didn't make any of these points in the text, that what he wasn't celebrating this woman, what he's pointing to as an example of a widow who was a victim 
of this system. Are you tracking with me? A victim of this system. Because if you think about it, like put yourself in those shoes. If you're sitting there and you're observing people giving and you see this poor, humble widow show up and you even have a little bit of background about her, you know she's like on her very last $20 in her wallet and, and she, you see her give to this system that you just got down, done rebuking and criticizing and saying how flawed it is, would you be celebrating that or would it more break your heart? Are you tracking with me? That, that, that's, that's what I would propose is, is, the, is the point that he's getting to, is the fact that that's like, hey, hey, it wasn't that big of a deal that the rich are giving. It wasn't that big of a deal because it didn't hurt. But here's getting to the pinnacle of the confusion and the perversion in this system is that it's built off the back of the poor. Any religious system, any religious system that built, uh, that's built on the back of the poor is tragic because a healthy religious system is taking care of the poor. Are you tracking with me? This is the, this is the difference there. And that he's calling them out saying, listen, this is, this is broken. It's interesting to do a little research on that in that system. They had their offering baskets that they had in the temple. It wasn't an offering basket that was passed around. They were actually shaped like a, like a horn up at the top and then funneled down and dropped into a box. In a coin system, this was like Chuck E. Cheese. Like this was the ultimate way to send, your, like you're throwing in your coin and you're watching it go down and then ding, ching at the bottom. Like it would be the perfect way to what? Kind of what they're saying, kind of, look at me, look what I gave, look at, the, look at how much I contributed. And he's saying, this, this is just a problem. He's saying, this is, this is messed up. And that's why he says, that's why he says such bold things as brood of vipers, brood of vipers. What is that? Like a, a lot of snakes in one spot. Like this is, this, is a, this is a bad problem that he's pointing out. So he's not, he's not glorifying that. He's not pointing it out to celebrate her giving to the broken system that he just talked about. But the point is, is this was validating the woes that he was giving on this people group, on the religious leaders of that time. Not to say that appropriate sacrificial giving isn't celebrated in Scripture. It is. In fact, it's something that God points to a lot. He talks about money more than anything else in the New Testament, but making sure that we have the appropriate context and understanding of it. I love 2 Corinthians 9, 7. I think this is a, a, a picture of giving that I think our church we're trying to model after. It says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That sounds a little bit more like what I would want our church to be modeled after. This last year, you've heard us talk a lot about this refresh project, and we're really trying to set the table, if you will, get our, our clean up our house and get it ready for future guests and inviting people here, wanting to, to, to create an environment where ministry can happen. They've wanted a, a kitchen for like 45 years. I think that's how old the church is. And, uh, and, and uh, actually 47, I think, but either way. Uh, but, but here, the, the, the thing that you can remember back, how we've tried to as a church, because we're trying to be above reproach with this. What was my ask about 12 months ago? If anybody was around, you can remember, what did I say? I said one simple thing. We're asking each family, go home, pray about this. If you feel like the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart towards giving, he's prompted you towards being a part of this project, then respond. 
If you don't feel that tug, if you don't feel like the Lord's uh, pushing you that direction, that's okay. This is a trust exercise. We believe God's gonna move and do what he chooses to do in this scenario. Do you see that? Where we're trying to model this and not model the whole guilt thing that brings a widow to give her last two cents to our church. And so here we're trying to live that out. We're, we have this next, this next month, we're finishing this project, we're trying to finish strong, asking the same exact thing of the church. As you feel, what, is the, what does the text say? It says, each one gives as he's decided in his heart, as God determines in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion or guilt, give towards that, that project. Great, and trusting God to do it. Here's the problem, though, is that a lot of times this system, even today in American church, is still abused, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we see it abused, we see it taken advantage of, that people have this idea that they're gonna earn God's favor. One of the things I've enjoyed in my, uh, my time so far here at the church is getting to work with uh, Bill Barry. We, we interact a lot of times about the messages and the different uh, topics of them, and we were dialoguing this week, and he's great at asking questions. And I was like, man, I would like to be better at that. And he was asking two questions. He's like, you know what, two questions that maybe the church should think about as it relates to this is how do outsiders view this when they look at the church? Let's be honest here. Let's just, uh, you know, just talk honestly. How do people typically view church world? Usually, they think of church world as like, you know what, just trying to get in my pocket, just trying to get money, you know, just trying to, to gain and trying to draw. And so, first off, what I love about this text is we can point back to saying, I'm sorry, You've blown it. Like American church, like the fact that, that, that elderly women are sending in social security checks based on seed giving, you know, based on maybe something good. This is going to buy you out of your desperate situation. Kind of the same thing that was happening in that day and age. It's still happening today. We can say the same thing as, we're sorry, that's not Jesus' heart for his church. That's not Jesus' heart for giving. He said, listen, in Jesus' desire for giving within the church is going back to exactly that. Wanted to be something between you and God. You wrestle through whatever you feel convicted, however you feel tugged, that's where you land. Follow your convictions, give cheerfully. That's what he's invited us to. So the peace is, as you're in interacting with the world around us and you hear that said, like, yeah, the church just wants money, you're like, yeah, they've blown it a lot. I'm sorry, but the one that's the head of the church, the one that's the guide, the one, that, the, the one that's the, uh, the, the one determining how it's supposed to be, it breaks his heart too. It's, it, it's sad. It's, it infuriates him, in fact. And so that's, that's what I would propose as a response. Another question Bill asked that I thought was a good one. He says, is there a commonly held belief among ABF that's challenged by this passage? I think, think about that for a second. Is there something that maybe we, because we've been around or exposed to maybe some false teaching as it relates to giving, that we've maybe started to buy into? Maybe the same system back there of earning God's favor, like a, a business relationship with him, where you're like, all right, if I do this, I can expect this in return. If I, if I write this check, he's gonna cover this piece of my life. And maybe that's some flawed thinking that snuck into our own hearts as a person, if we're honest, if we're gonna really dialogue about this. Maybe that snuck in. And so again, pointing back to Jesus' heart in this, 
is giving for us, if you think about it, is an invitation for us to experience the freedom from the grip money can have on us. I love that thought of it. It's, the, it's an invitation. It's saying, listen, when you give, when you're blessing somebody, when you're doing things to advance the kingdom, it's an invitation to say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull a little bit of the grip that money has on my life off. Maybe, that, maybe that's God's gift to us. Instead of it's a, a plea, maybe it's an invitation to more joy and release of the grip. Anybody feel like maybe in this area, in this region, where there's a little bit of grip that money gets on people? And so this is an invitation that he's saying, listen, that's my heart, not to steal from orphans not, or, or, or widows. It's, it's my heart is for it to be a gift, something that you enjoy. That's his design. That's his plan. So here, just kind of in conclusion, the reminders that he points to to us is being aware, being cautious of who we're receiving truth from, who's a, a guide in our life. We need to be very, like this is, a, this is a serious thing, who we choose to embrace truth from, we need to be cautious of that. It needs, I've talked about this multiple times, it needs to be run through the filter of God's word, right? It needs to go through that filter before we're like, all right, I'm adopting that as truth. He calls them out on it. We need to be cautious of that. But then here too, remembering God's design for the church, true religion was to take care of the orphan and the widow, not to build a foundation on them for your financial gain. Like he's saying, that's not my heart. That's not my plan for the church. My prayer for us as we kind of wrestle through this stuff is that we'd get some of this right, that it would come from a heart. Remember a few weeks back, I mentioned this, we talked about, really, that's, that's what he wants. He's not, oh my goodness, I'm short on cash again. Like, he's not, he's not waiting to try to figure out how to pay some bills. Like, God's like, man, I just want your heart. That's what I want. I just, I just want that piece of you. Many times, though, the financial thing's pretty tied to that, so there's a, a direct correlation, right? So, but here, a great reminder not what the false guides have taught us, but literally back to Jesus' heart that breaks when it's abused, uh, gets fired up about it, and speaks truth about pending condemnation. It's serious stuff. Pray that God would teach and grow us in this area. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this text and how practical your word is and how you got fired up about things too, that you, that you were not content with just leaving things the way that they were even at the risk of harm to yourself. How do we thank you so much for this text? And I just pray that would uh, re retrain our thinking, that, that you love a cheerful giver. You love for us to give sacrificially, but making sure that it's coming from an appropriate heart, not driven by false guides. God, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us and your provision in our life. We get to go into this, this Thanksgiving week and really celebrate and, and enjoy uh, you, enjoy the, the giver of good gifts. Praise you in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Those are some pretty bold statements, right? In that song, that's our prayer. That's our prayer for us as a church. That's our prayer for us individually. That would just be a submission to him. Take, take reign of all of this stuff. It's a big deal. I pray you have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you.